1 Kings chapter 15 this evening. The title, Royal Hardheads. I may run out of disparaging titles <laughs> for the kings, but they're true. I'm not picking at them. They're the ones that left this record behind. We have four kings, two from Judah and two from the northern kingdom. And uh, it's remarkable in this chapter that David's name, over 60 years after his death, is still being put in front of us in a very noble way. Looking at verse 1, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam, became king over Judah. Well, the kingdom has now been split for almost two decades. And Abijam, as king, Rehoboam's son, he was groomed to be king by his father, Rehoboam. I don't know if that's a good thing. It's sort of the blind leading the blind. We learn that from Second Chronicles. In chapter 11, Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. So maybe Rehoboam said, well, since we have no record of Solomon investing in Rehoboam, maybe Rehoboam said, you know, I'm going to invest in my son. Uh, that's wise and all of that, but it appears to not have been with a lot of attention for God. Although Abijam starts out following the Lord, but he doesn't remain serious about it, which is why he becomes one of the hardheads in the chapter or in the reign of the kings. In verse 2, he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maaka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Well, very short relative to how long other kings reigned. Uh, the mother's of Judah's kings are named for emphasis. They're citing the pedigree, the claim to the throne of the king that is now occupying the throne and fulfillment to David as king. Now, this sounds very boring, not because it is. There's a lot that goes into coming to these conclusions. If you pick up the Bible, if you were an, an unbeliever and you just picked up... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 15, you wouldn't know where you were. And so you take a little time to just color in these important points in the background. You know, you ever look at a child's artwork like coloring? I don't mean the disasters when they're real small and, and we lie. Oh, it's so nice <laughs> when it's really not. Oh, you don't find that funny. I never told my kids, oh, it's nice. I said, ooh, look at that. <laughs> but anyway, sometimes they forget to color in something in the background. I don't know about you, but I always notice that. Like, they didn't do the sun. <laughs> you know, they got everybody's face in. Well, so I'm coloring in some of the stuff, so you can hopefully take that away. Well, Maaka, the granddaughter of Ab Abishalom, it says. That's a variation of Absalom. And... Uh, so that means Abijah, this now king, that Rehoboam's son, uh, his, uh, his mother, Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom, Absalom, who rebelled against David. Uh, he, again, had a short, righteous walk. He even rebuked Jeroboam when they were about to go to war against each other. 
saying that you've appointed priests that aren't part of the Aaronic line, and you serve idols. And you would hope that after that speech he gives in Second Chronicles 13 that he would have adhered to the Lord, but he does not. Verse 3, And he walked in all the sins of his father which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of his father David. So there again, David is the benchmark. He became an idolater. Uh, the word translated loyal denotes, as we know, the word means one who is entirely devoted, and in this case, to God. And his heart, uh, as was the heart of his father David. Each of the subsequent kings of Judah would be judged by the character of David's relationship with God. Now, the historian is going to point out the asterisk in David's life, because if he doesn't, people are going to him and ha, and we all know it's there. Um, Jeroboam, on the other hand, he will be the benchmark for wickedness for the kings in the north. In verse 4, Nevertheless, for David's sake, Yahweh, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. So, after Abijam, God keeping his promise to support the Davidic dynasty, and he is also disassociating himself with Abijam because he is an idolater, but this lamp is going to really be, at this point, Asa, who starts out as a king that you just love and ends up you, you, disappointing you, but not, not uh, he, he, no record of him becoming an idolater, and we'll get back to that. So nevertheless, for David's sake, Yahweh, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, and that the king's on the throne. The Lord gave him um, the lamp in Jerusalem. The corruption, of course, was not universal in Jerusalem as it was in the palaces of the north. Now, there were people in the northern kingdom that still loved the Lord in spite of their king being uh, into idolatry. And that's throughout their history. So, God, of course, keeping the light burning. As I mentioned, Asa will be devout. And, and he stays, you know, loyal to, to God overall. That overall part is he, he stops trusting in the Lord. So some, some good lessons to come from his life. And we'll, we'll get to that as we move, move through this. But here in verse 4, by setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Verse 5, because David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the manner of Uriah the Hittite. Quite profound, because David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. Never strayed into idolatry. So as we look at, uh, of course, de devilish indoctrination in, in schools from you know, pre-kindergarten all the way up to the highest levels of the university, it's the infestation of satanic influence. Uh, you would think that they would stick to the disciplines, but they don't. If, if I go to a university to get a degree in uh, civil engineering, I don't want to hear what their politics are. I want to know about civil engineering, but that's not what they're doing. Well, here in Israel, what the historians were doing was say, hey, this is a fact. The Psalms we sing, David wrote most of them. And the Psalms that he didn't write, he influenced most of them. 
And so David's a big deal. And it was not only patriotic, it was spiritual for Israel. And the historians are doing what they're supposed to do. Look, you're either going to be, your brain's going to be made dirty by Satan, or brain, your brain's going to be washed by the Lord. And these men were doing everything they could. Rather than putting up these hideous flags in classrooms, they're saying, hey, David was a man of God. Be like that. Yeah, he goofed, but still, he was a man of God. That's what they're saying. Psalm 130, verse 3. David wrote, If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Tell that to the legalists. They walk around with a magnifying glass, judging everybody else. And they do it in their hearts, uh, which is worse. And they they don't always come out and tell you, Hey, I'm sitting over here in a chair watching you and your family, and I'm judging you. Uh, They won't come out and say that, but they're doing that. And I don't know, maybe you say, I don't know anybody like that. That's how good they are. (laughs) <laughs> flying beneath the radar because they can't come out and always tell you. But anyhow, some of you have had encounters with those self-righteous types that uh, make you feel like you're not as holy as they are. They just have a way about doing that. Anyway, uh, uh, the kings of the north judged by Jeroboam. The only one that really was worse than Jeroboam was Ahab, who married Jezebel. We'll get to them as we move through kings. Verse 6. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now, mostly hostilities between these two, but uh, their, their children is going, they, they come to the throne are going to escalate the, these hostilities. Uh, it was good God protected the kingdom early on. If they had gone at it right away, the, it would have been worse than, than what the record tells us. The enemies surrounding them would have taken advantage. Anyway... Um, this Abijam, who is still king at this point, he, um, he tried to get the northern kingdom to come back, tried to take it back by force, but it, it failed. And in that attempt, 500,000 of the troops of the northern kingdom were slaughtered, were killed. And you can read that in Second Chronicles 13. So this is the, some of the bitterness and the hostilities that are flying around that don't make it onto the pages as, uh, how, can, how can you document them, right? You just say, hey, 500,000 people were killed in battles. So that's a lot of widows and a lot of people going to be upset over that. Uh, we have no reason to doubt those numbers either. Anyway, in those days, at that time, at that battle, God gave them the victory. Abijam was trusting in the Lord. That's when he gave his speech to, to Jeroboam. The lesson is, is easy to pick up, especially for you youth. You can start out going to church, loving the Lord, and all of a sudden you go out into the world and you experience some success or defeat, and then you're not walking with the Lord anymore. Uh, these kings they, that, that did start out walking with God, he gave them victories. You would think they would build on those victories. They did not. They turned on him, most of them. Verse 7, Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. Well, the chronicles uh, that we have in our Bible are about the kings of Judah, whereas the kings, in fact, after this chapter, it's almost exclusively about the kings of the north and uh, only mentioning by reference some interactions with the kings of the south. But the chronicles are where we get most of this information about men like Asa uh, and, and other Judean kings. 
So here in verse 7, um, well, we'll go with verse 8. There's nothing I want to say there. Verse 8, And so Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, the son, his son, reigned in his place. And as I mentioned, Asa would have a wonderful beginning where he just trusted God, and God blessed him in, in big ways. And then he turned, and, and he grew foolish. And as I also mentioned, he did not turn to idolatry, which is outstanding. As you look at the uh, next to the other kings, John, in his first letter, writes, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, well, there are sins that do not lead to death. There are degrees of sin. And uh, there are those sins that do lead to death. John says uh, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. So John is saying there are some sins that are huge. And becoming an antichrist, becoming an idolater, they're big sins. And you've got to be careful when you talk about sin sometimes because you can end up crushing those who are doing right in this cursed world and make them feel unfairly guilty. And then you have the others that are looking for an excuse to sin. It's okay, good. I'll be forgiven for this one. And, you know, that, that's, it's not holiness. Holiness is the pursuit of perfection before a holy God, knowing that we can't attain, but also the value of that pursuit. Uh, that's what separates the shallow from the not-so-shallow. Verse 9 in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. So now uh, he is king. He is going to bring great reform. Uh, now, when we say reform, we mean he's, he's going to try to clean up the land from the idolatry that's crept in. Uh, the word reform, does, it sounds uh, theological or, you know, there used to be a time you'd send bad boys to reform school uh, to reform them. Uh, anyway... Uh, this um, reformation, many of the Judean kings attempted it. None of them completely succeeded. But it is um, a, a noble start. And uh, it prolonged, these actions prolonged judgment on the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, of course, will fall to the Assyrians long before uh, the southern does. When you read about the kings of Judah they fall into three categories of good, the good ones, that is. And there's only about really six of them And af after Solomon. There's mostly good, there's good, and then there is very good. Whereas the kings of Judah fall into three categories, essentially, of bad. There, there's bad, there's wicked, and there's evil. And, you, you, you know, you, you see, this is life. These are sermons to preach. These are lessons to learn about human behavior. That, uh, you know, the thing about Hollywood, Hollywood is so obnoxious. They'll show you what they're doing to you and charge you for it. You know, they'll, I, there's a movie out about um, oh, The Circle, I think it's called, and it's about technology and in being invasive in lives and how damaging it is. Well, it's just what they're doing. And they're not, this is outright with it. Yeah, this is what we're doing. Now, be entertained by this. <laughs> and they, they don't care any. But who's going to stop us? There's, that's, 
the brazen sin. Well, learning to identify these things is a skill. Uh, spiritual discernment is, um, is one part of the Christian life, but just being able to recognize, to determine, distinguish good from evil is a basic part of our faith. And when we don't do that, that gullibility comes with a price. And it hurts the church. It makes people not want to respect Christianity. And when they don't respect Christianity, they don't want to listen to what it has to say through its, through its um, adherence. However, it also provides a wonderful opportunity to undo some of the damage. The Nehemiah principle. Nehemiah could not rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until he removed the rubbish, the broken down walls. And this was a big part of the story of Nehemiah. Well, if you are in the workplace or school, wherever you find yourself, you want to share Christ, but he has uh, such a, a negative uh, reception by the audience, you find out why. Why is it that you are so against Christianity? And when they begin to tell you, then you can start taking rubbish away. When they say, well, you know, uh, the Christians did this, and they, maybe they'll point to the Crusaders or something like that. So, well, what does that have to do with the Bible? I, I don't get what you're talking about. That's what they did with the Bible. That doesn't mean the Bible told them to do it. And you just have a lot of opportunity there. I have found that very successful with some. Of course, then there are others who don't want to hear anything you have to say. You, you could part the Red Sea. You could walk on the water, and they don't want to hear what you have to say. Anyway, verse 10. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem, his grandmother's name was Maaka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And Asa, verse 11, did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, as did his father David. Verse 12, and he banished the perverted persons of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Rehoboam and Abijam. They're the ones that really, well, Solomon, of course, brought them into, he was the beginning of it. Second Chronicles 14, verse 1, Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for ten years. This is one of his achievements. Verse 2, Second Chronicles 14, Asa did what was good, in the, good and right in the eyes of Yahweh his God. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek Yahweh, God of their fathers, and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. A very noble beginning. And then... Oh, I don't know, 15 years later, he, he has another reformation. And he, he, he stays true. But we'll, we'll get to his end. Here it says, he banished the perverted persons. This ongoing struggle. This is uh, sexually perverted. They were part of the pagan rites. They were male prostitutes at this point. That's who's being referred to here. Um, they licentious, idolatrous, unclean. We read about it in 1 Kings 14, last chapter we were in. in chapter 22, we get it again. In chapter 20, uh, 2 Kings, we get it another time. 
And the point is, it's hard to get the leaven out. How do you get the, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. How do you get it out? Uh, Deuteronomy 23, 17. There shall be no ritual harlot for the daughters of Israel. Now, here comes the distinction between the male and the females. Or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. And, and that distinction is, of course, being violated in Asa's day. And he is trying to eradicate it. First Kings 15 uh, is uh, giving it to us, what he was doing. But here it is from the King James Version. And this is not wrong. Sometimes the translators give us an interpretive rendering of a word. Because it's, too, it's, it's, you know, it's an idiom, or it's just too broad of a word. It's more of a picturesque a word picture than a word in our language. And so then they have to come up with a way to say, well, this is what the, he's talking about based on the context and our knowledge of or the etymology of the, the Hebrew word. And so uh, 1 Kings 15, the verse we're looking at in the King James, and he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. And that, that is an accurate translation. Then the English Standard Version, I don't, I don't like cross-referencing versions too much because it makes it sound like uh, it just, you can't trust anything. Well, what does this version say? What does that version You go nuts. I mean, how many different translations? I mean, enough with the translations. Uh, every generation or so, a few generations, you need to update the language and come out with one. Uh, in the 80s, when they came out with the New King James, what a relief that was. But it hasn't gotten the scholastic applause that the New American Standard or the, the awful NIV uh, just other translations, they have scholastic support. And it, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, when you start picking apart their side of the story, then uh, things change. But few do that because scholars, as uh, Campbell Morgan said, uh, they go, they, uh, theologians like sheep all go astray. They just kind of lockstep and go the wrong way together. Anyway, First uh, Kings 15, in the English Standard Version, he put away the male cult prostitutes. Now, that is an interpretive rendering. The word doesn't say that in the Hebrew, but that's what it is. Uh, out of the land and removed the hall of idols that his fathers had made. So we, uh, we see these who are very skilled with language trying to tell us What's going on there in this verse? And, and they're all uh, accurate. Uh, I like the King James, the perverted persons. Why does that stand out to me? Well, because of the Frankensteinish doctors and the pharmaceutical maniacs that we are facing today that are creating uh, drugs to help people change gender on the surface. I mean, you know, you, you, we're going to give you hormones and, and we're going to just stop you from being whatever you were born to be. Uh, so you, the, this is perversion. And then you've got the plastic surgeons that have come along and, well, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to butcher you. And this is somehow acceptable. It's a perversion. Uh, it's nothing like it in all of human history. I mean, there were attempts to modify the body even in, in amongst the ancients, but it was so... Uh, crude compared to today's uh, Frankensteins. 
you know what Frankenstein did, the, the fictitious character. You got dead parts of people, uh, uh, cadavers, and he put them all together and he created life into this monster. And then there was the bride of Frankenstein, who's once you see her hairdo, you never forget it. But anyway, uh, this mass insanity, they are tenacious about it. We're seeing this. We're seeing how you, know, you don't have a right to raise your kids. They're not yours. They're harvesting kids this way by telling a parent, no, your parents, your child's in the school system, they're ours. You, had, you gave birth to this child so we can take them. We are harvesting your family for our agenda. So when the historian says he banished the perverted persons, we want one of these guys to get into the White House and every other house. And they're, they're hard. I mean, we, we see them, you know, Florida's slugging it out in Texas. We've got some people that are fighting these things. My point is that the same uh, tenacious resistance that the kings, the righteous kings faced, uh, we are facing. When I was a new Christian reading, and I, I read, and but he could not rid the land of idols. And I would be, you know, boy, how weak is that? Well, now I don't think that way. Now it's like, yeah, I know, it's hard. Well, it's very hard to kill a sacred cow. They don't stay dead. Somebody comes along and breathes mouth to mouth and resuscitates that thing. Uh, it, it just is terrible. When he, anyway, he says, from the land, that's Judah. He banished the perverted people from, this is God's promised land. The people whom the Lord called to holiness had adopted all the corrupt prop, prop, uh, practices of the people God was judging. So you raise a child, to, uh, the straight and narrow, and they, they go to the universities or schools of the world, and they become perverted if they're not careful. They become corrupted. They learn from the Canaanites. Who God drove out. Leviticus 20, verse 23. You should not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. For they commit all these things, and therefore I hate them. That's what it says. Abhor is kind of a light or word. I, I changed it to hate because, <laughs> because that's what it is. And that's pretty intense coming from God. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. And none of these, this, you know, this is why people want to come to the Bible. Well, that's outdated. That was for that culture. No, it's not. Thou shalt not kill is for every culture. <laughs> Thou shalt not steal is for everybody. You don't get a pass. You don't get to pick and choose. The ones that are cultural are, are said to be culture, cultural. So, well, for instance, Paul deals with the Corinthians. And he says, you know, uh, such rules I don't have for the other churches. He's talking to, about the Corinthians and how they conduct, the women are conducting themselves. Anyway... Uh, verse 5, uh, it is not because of your righteousness or the righteousness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give you this land, God is saying, and I'm not giving it to you so you can just become immoral. Uh, now, now, here again, when dealing with particular sins, you know, you don't want to, you want to convict the guilty. 
to rebuke, exhort, convict those who contradict. That's the role of the pastor and the role of the Christian and to some large degree, certainly parents too. So you have someone, maybe they're struggling with a sin. Now, I'm not going to pick a sin, because, but I'll just make one up. Let's say you like bananas. <laughs> See, I get, to, I get to speak from the pulpit. I get to pick which food I don't like. No, anyway. <laughs> I was just telling my daughter the other day, people will hate you over food. Be careful. In life, you, you don't mess with somebody's sports team, their food, or their pickup truck. Anyway, let's just say some sin. And you've got someone in the congregation struggling with the sin. Well, you're not trying to brutalize the person. You're trying to just remind them this is a fight. It's not okay. As opposed to skipping over it. Or opposed to promoting it. And so now it becomes a, a skill uh, a skill set of the Christian. To try to reach those who are struggling. Well, Paul, in dealing with the synod, uh, one particular man in Corinth, said, throw that guy out. I don't need to be there. That sin is just the Gentiles don't do that stuff. Well, after they did that, then he says, okay, now bring him back in. Show him love. He's fixed the problem. We know he's fixed the problem because Paul was very clear about these uh, uh, not excusing this. And, and that is a good pattern uh, you who are spiritual, Paul said to the Galatians, restore such a one. To learn how to gently, I mean, now if somebody gets uppity and blatant, you know, gets up in your face, well, you got to get back at them. You know, Lord rebuke you. Get away from me. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You, you, you're trying to endorse things that the Bible has forbidden. Clearly, uh, this is the end of the conversation. But if you've got somebody who says, I know, I'm struggling with this. All right, well, we, we, can, we can work on that together. So, uh, these abominations that Asa was ridding from the land, they did not deserve any form of tolerance. This, you know, if someone says, well, I struggle with it. You know, I want to see God. And you say, well, that's not what we believe. We have a God that has told us we have an invisible God. And he doesn't appreciate people making these monstrosities and saying it's him. Because some of the Jews were saying, here's my idol, it's Yahweh. They weren't all worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. I mean, this was the problem with, with uh, Moses came down the hill. The people said, this is our God who led us out of Egypt. No, it's not. And so some things are uh, deal breakers and should not be tolerated. Well, throughout the land, the people had erected pillars honoring Baal and poles honoring Ashtoreth. They were profane. They were sexually profane. And uh, this is, uh, uh, Paul dealt with this, you know, in Corinth when he was there. He writes to the Romans. And when he lays out that, that uh, first chapter in Romans, he's itemizing the sins that are uh, just flagrant in, and uh, everywhere in Corinth as well as Rome. And he doesn't uh, pull any punches there. Anyway, these abominations were found on every high hill under every green tree is the infestation. But most shocking of all, again, were the male cult prostitutes that spring up in the land. To this day, uh, uh, homosexuality is celebrated in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is like San Francisco or worse. I mean, it's just these things. You go to the Holy Land? Well, don't go to Tel Aviv. 
uh, it's um, sin. It's just no, no joke. Anyway, he removed the idols that is from in verse 12 and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Um, the word idol here is actually an intended derogatory jab at the idols. Uh, the, um, it, it means a roll, like a cylinder. And it is, uh, it's, it's, you know, Ezekiel is, hits it the hardest. He says, you worship the dung gods. And uh, this is how, the, the, this is reality. This is the fact of the vehemence against idolatry coming into the lives of the, of the people of Israel. Anyway, verse 13. <clears throat> also, he removed Maaka, the grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Ashtoreth. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. If we were in Chronicles, we'd be going more into detail in these things. But uh, there it is. Uh, write out what these were not, you know, little pictures of the moon and the sun in their orbit. Uh, these had everything to do with uh, licentious, immoral behavior. Either he's a cruel grandson or he is a righteous man and she's a wicked woman. And that is the fact. There's no sweeping it under the rug. She's a wicked woman brings to mind the words of the Lord. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. When Jesus used that word hate, everybody's attention was, he got everyone's attention. And by the, the thing is by comparison. I love God so much compared to everything else, I hate those things. It is, it is uh, hyperbole, but it is in, in, intentional. It just, the Lord is, of course, not telling anyone. He preached love. You've got to hate your parents. He's the first commandment is you shall honor your mother and father. But if that love for your children or your whatever else in life begins to eclipse your love for God, you have a really big problem. And the solution is, because I know, some say, I know, I, I kinda, I'm working on this because it's emotional. But you're working on it. That's, that's the, what God is looking for. So, this uh, sexual perversion and idolatry, they go together. Because once the fence of the law is taken away, what's to stop the human being from doing whatever they want to do? Uh, just, I mean, I, I mean uh, you know, the missionaries, they're the ones that stopped cannibalism in the South Pacific. And had they not shown up there... Uh, it would probably still be going on. This um, fence of the law is what they brought to these places. You can't be eating your neighbor. I mean, that's just, I mean, there are just some sins that it's an absolute no. There are no exceptions. There's not a time where it's okay to eat, <laughs> to eat, to eat somebody. I mean, it's just, you know. It's just not right. There's no, no justification. Well, we were starving. Well, you should have died. You're going to die anyway. Just don't ever put some, don't, don't do it. Don't put somebody on the plate. Anyway, Acer cut down the obscene image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Uh, this event here is 15 years after his initial reformation. We get that from First, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 15. We, we find that out. Um, in fact, maybe I'll just read it. Uh, 
15.10. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year of the reign of Asa. And then it begins to itemize uh, what they did, which is what is recorded here. The historian in Kings doesn't bother with that. He just gets to the point. And uh, verse 14 But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to Yahweh all his days. Big statement. The high places were not all removed. And again, that's the verse I used to look at. So why? Why not? Because I was naive as a new believer. I thought that, you know, righteousness would reign. And, and, well, it will when Christ comes. But right now, it's just, it's knock down, drag out, fight to the end. This difficulty of eradicating embedded sin from a culture. Uh, look at uh, some of the other countries. Look how many, how much money has been poured into Haiti. And has it made, um, on an individual level, there are those that get saved, but overall, the country is just, um, just man, where, where's the solution? Uh, but again, do, we do succeed, uh, the missionaries, with the uh, eradicating cannibalism. It's one example. We are told that his heart was perfect as was that of his father. As we read in verse 11, Asa did right in the eyes of Yahweh as his father David. These are not little things because when we start coming across the kings where it never says this about them, we, we, we are very disappointed. So you say, well, how is it that he's a hard-headed, or a royal hard-head? Well, the way he, he, we'll get to that in a little bit. But he worked to preserve Judah for a time. The Davidic dynasty held on for 350 years. The nine or so dynasties to the north, different families, you know, exchanging power over the north, uh, about 250 years. So that 100-year difference, uh, Judah held on, verse 15. He also brought into the house of Yahweh the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. Well, he's going to misuse this, and that's, uh, it seems, well, let's just pick it up, see, go, go forward. Verse 16, now there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days, and Baasha, verse 17, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Ramah is where they made the noodles, the ramen noodles, <laughs> okay. Uh, not true. Anyway, um, just five miles north of Jerusalem. So it's in his neighborhood. He's, he's bringing in, he's, he's taking territory. And it's in Benjamin's territory. And Benjamin sided with Judah when the, when the kingdom split. And he makes, puts up a blockade to control the freedom of the people and the trade routes. That's the important part right there. Uh, follow the money. The writer was dating this event from the time that the kingdom was divided. 36 years at this point when this event is taking place. Because after uh, Jeroboam, his son Nabat, uh, not Nabat, his son uh, Nadab becomes king. Well, the writer skips over that for now. He's going to come back to it. Basha kills them, him. So he skipped the king the writer of, the historian of 1 Kings 15, but at the end, he comes back to it. The sequence is all out of place. And this is, again, why the Old Testament is very difficult to, um, 
really button down so much stuff. Uh, anyway, you have 17 years of Rehoboam's rule, three years under Abijam, and Asha's, Asha's 16 years, and you have the 36 years uh, since the split of the kingdom. Um, so here comes King Bashat from the north. He's fortifying Ramah. Asa realizes Jerusalem is in danger, and he's got to do something. And what he's going to do, and this is where the split comes between him and God. In previous events, he turned to the Lord. We're going to read some of those in a little while. It was very wonderful things uh, that he said. Uh, but now he's going to turn to a Gentile king, to the Assyrians. And this is going to cause the problem. And there's the lesson. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? You started out trusting God. You, you had a successful childhood trusting the Lord. And God is blessing you. Then you, you encounter some beast on the road, and now you're not going to trust God. Now you're going to trust something else. Now this, I mean, there are things that God has ordained and sanctioned. Here's an example of somebody taking this verse, and uh, this kind of teaching and twisting it. So I'm not going to go to the doctor because I'm going to trust God. See, that's not the Bible support, does not support that. I think it's very, it's very much intentional that Luke is referred to as the physician. It's the New Testament saying, we use doctors. We use them. Thou shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Cast yourself down from this pinnacle because it is written, he shall give his aim. See, that's manipulating the scripture. And uh, there are people that do that. I've, I've, I believe, I've, I, I know people have died waiting for God to help them. When I was a beginning Christian again, I got a migraine headache, and I'm just going to trust God. I will never do that again in my life. Not trust God. I don't mean that part. That part, I'll trust God. I'll trust him to work through the Tylenol. And if, if it doesn't work, then I'll trust him anyway. Uh, just went through that with COVID, actually. Uh, fine, Lord. I remember sitting up. I couldn't sleep. Just, Lord, fine. You don't want to kill me from this. I'll just sit here and take it. <laughs> well, uh, but, I, you know, it was wrong. Bad theology. Putting God in, in that space. Well, where else do you do that? Do you do that? I'm not going to hit the brakes, Lord. I'm just going to keep hitting that gas pedal and trust that you'll just have everything out of my way. And it's just stupidity. Um, anyway, but Satan's sneaky. He knows how to try to redirect it. Verse 18. Then Asa took all the silver, the gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimam, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, and before we get to what he's saying, the treasures that he has also, whatever was left over from Shishak, the king of Egypt that came out and stole the golden shields from Rehoboam. And then, of course, Asa put more in. And well, this is the treasure. And these things were kept at the house of God and uh, dedicated to Yahweh. And what he is going to do is he is going to defund God and enrich Syria. And these are the lessons that we are supposed to contemplate so that when it's our turn, we can think through it. Verse 19, 
Let there be a treaty between you and me. This is what he is saying to the king um, of, of Syria. And there was, uh, as there was between my father and your father, see, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Loyalty goes to the highest bidder, <laughs> which makes it not loyalty. Uh, he is trying to get him to break his agreement. I think there's been a problem with that. People getting a contract on a house and a house and the person just breaking the contract <laughs> for the higher bidder and uh, really creating a, a legal hornet's nest. Anyway, they were loyal to power and its wealth. Verse 20, Then Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked Aijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Meaka, and Kinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. Again, more trade routes. This is going to also enrich the Syrians. Kinneroth, the, the harp, that's Galilee. And if you look at Galilee on a map, it, it looks like a harp. The Romans are the ones that gave it the name Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. But the Jews, uh, they still call it uh, the harp in the, in the Jewish language. Uh, anyway, uh, verse 21, Now it happened when Baasha heard it, that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Terza. So he abandons the project uh, because he, he, he can't fight the south and the Syrians coming down, and then he's got uh, Asa coming at him, and so he just abandons it. And Asa is, uh, does, he does a smart thing. Verse 22, And King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stones and the timber of Rama, which Baasha used for the building. <clears throat> and with them, King Asha built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. So <clears throat> he says they've abandoned, uh, the word gets back, they've abandoned it. And he says, this is a major product, a priority project. Let's go steal all the construction materials and redirect them to other cities and fortify ourselves. And uh, you know, that's what he does. He turns the tables on Basha's blockade. This was vital. The problem was he didn't go to God. That, that is the problem. So, yeah, it is a problem, if, I think, if you go to the doctor as a Christian, you don't pray. I don't know, I mean, maybe you forgot. I'm going to talk about that. But if you just think that, you know, prayer's not going to work, now you do have a problem. Uh, and I know we don't do that. I mean, we, we activate the prayer line. We pray for people. We don't take uh, any... Uh, chances on um, uh, with unbelief. We we want God always center. No good gift comes except through the Father, says James, and other places of the Bible. Anyway, the design, the plan to buy the mercenaries from Syria worked, and Asa prospers. But God is not pleased, and Hanani, the prophet is going to confront him. Second uh, Chronicles 16, verses 7 through 10. At that time, now after he's been, Hadad has come and helped him. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on on Yahweh your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from 
your hand, meaning God had other plans that uh, Asa messed up. Now, when the Ethiopians came against him, they were a million-man army, and God helped him. Well, God brings it up through the prophet. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not huge, not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on Yahweh, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord, now here's one of the great verses of the Bible. The eyes of Yahweh run to and fro throughout all the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly, therefore, from now on you shall have wars. Now, and Asa was angry with the seer, that's Hanani, and put him in prison. For he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Well, the, there's going to be more to the story. But I can know in my life, I've quoted that. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the world. Show himself strong. Where are you, Lord? Well, after that problem passed, here I still am. So evidently, he has answered that prayer. Uh, answered prayer sometimes is, no, you've got to suffer through this one. You've just got to go through it. And for reasons that um, we may never know in this life, and we won't care when we get to the next life. I'm not going to get to heaven and say, Lord, why did you take so long? <laughs> Who's going to be Who's going to be that? I don't think any of us will be. It's like, yeah, yeah, why? whatever. Look at this. Uh, just thinking carnal that way. Anyway, uh, verse 23. The rest of the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So the mention of him being stricken in his feet is a footnote against his self-will. Oh, yeah, I should look at that. <laughs> I didn't think he'd get it so fast, though. He was really good. Usually you're, like, really slow. <laughs> no. Anyway, it's a footnote to his self-will. It really is. It's got to, oh, by the way, I'm going to put this right here. Because God's displeasure. Here's a proverb that fits Asa like a shoe. Proverbs 29. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And, and not that he was damned, because he was, again, he never went into idolatry. But God made his statement for future generations, which some didn't get. Very... Um, very, just uh, a big deal, this is not the best finish to an otherwise brilliant reign. He was that close to the finish line, and he drops the ball. First, uh, well, I know, you don't run, they don't carry <laughs> the baton. Verse 24, And Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, then Jehoshaphat, his son reigned in his place. Well, uh, we won't get to Jehoshaphat until chapter 22. He's one of the kings that is part of the story. And uh, Asa, though he behaved foolishly in the end, he did not become an apostate, and that is big news. I wanted to take another verse uh, from his speech, and uh, I don't want to spend the time looking for it. 
But you can you can go through Second Chronicles uh, thirteen through sixteen, and 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 find. Now I know this verse by heart, and I. I'm not going to try to stumble through it, but I want to. You know, my Chuck Smith could pause during his sermons so long you'd, you'd reach to turn the thing off because you'd think he was done. I, I can't do that. I can't have what's called, a, I guess, a pregnant pause. It's like that silence kills me. <laughs> anyway, um, no, we'll just move forward. Verse 25. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. So now he goes all the way back to uh, the beginning of uh, Asa's reign, completely out of chronological order from the last 24 verses we looked at. And uh, the historian now turns his attention to the kings of Israel, and that's where he will stay throughout the rest of the book. Uh, Verse 26, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. So he continued with the gold calf worship for the short period, for the two years that he was on the throne. And what we're getting, of course, is politicians, uh, they will be held accountable. Uh, some who are righteous, and great many of them who are not. Verse 28, oh no, 27, And Baasha, son of Ahijah the, of the house of Ishakar, conspired against him, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. So this was a Levitical city. Gibbethon, uh, in the territory of Dan. But the Philistines, you know, while Israel's going through her drama and problems, they crept in and they took this territory. Well, uh, uh, Nadab, he's going to, he raises a force, he's going to take this ter- territory back. Well, while the siege of this area is underway, Baasha, Baasha uh, kills him and takes the throne in the northern kingdom. Verse 28, Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And remember, so Baasha is going to then move towards Ramah, and that's where we get Asa cracking under the pressure and sending to Ben-Hadad for help. Uh, Verse 28, uh, verse 29, and it was so. When he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam, he did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed, until he had destroyed him, according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, and by which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation, with which he had provoked Yahweh, God of Israel, uh, to anger. And, And so this was a judgment on his house, and... It's fulfilled prophecy yet again. <clears throat> and so moving forward, we look at verse, uh, I don't make sure there's really nothing else to say there. He thoroughly eliminated any political competition. Verse 31, and the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel, which we don't have? Verse 32, and there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. 
In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Terzah and reigned 22 years. Verse 34, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, that's Baasha, and walked in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So 24 years he persisted in the same course of evil as his predecessors, um, Again, as mentioned Sunday, God's people sometimes preach like Nahum. We, we, we bring out the judgment because of the love of God in us. And because we hate the, the evil and the inhumanity, we despise the cruelty and the wickedness. And that's why we sometimes preach these judgments. And we're watching them unfold here to the kings. And our disappointment with the dominion, of evil in the hearts of the Hebrew rulers is because we side with God. So when we read these and we're disappointed, we side with God. That's why we're disappointed. And like when we read the Gospels, and we come to the crucifixion, we're, it's, it's, I think it's emotional. You know, we, I don't mean we break down necessarily crying in our latter years as we've read the story so many times, but we still feel it because we side with God. So uh, let's, let's pray. Oh, Uh, never mind. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, this evening, all these uh, things, may they be useful uh, to us so that we can serve you better. And we ask that you would get us all home safely. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.